You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the entirely merciful, the especially merciful. No, but indeed, man transgresses. Because he sees himself self-sufficient. Indeed, to your Lord is the return. Have you seen the one who forbids a servant when he prays? Have you seen if he is upon guidance or enjoins righteousness? Have you seen if he denies and turns away Does he not know that Allah sees? No, if he does not desist, we will surely drag him by the forelock. A lying, sinning forelock. Then let him call his associates. We will call the angels of hell. No, do not obey him, but prostrate and draw near to Allah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Radio Ramadan 87.7 FM. We are also live on our website rr365.co.uk forward slash listen live uh, and on our Facebook. Uh, today it is 18th of Ramadan, uh, 18th of Ramadan and iftar in Glasgow is 8-18, 9th of April 2023, 18th of Ramadan, iftar in Glasgow at 8-18. I'm your host Zubair Akram and uh, my guest, as always, Sheikh Radwan, uh, on Surah Alak. And you have listened to some of the, well, uh, ayah number six until the last ayah. Yesterday, we finished off uh, the, the, the program with how um, praying in public can also mean public expression of faith. It's not just praying, the, the act of praying. And it is saying uh with your being with your words that i believe in there is one god and no uh, and no one else and whatever comes with it and how uh people who represent abu jahl in this day and age those characters still exist so there are three characters uh in these ayahs that we discussed one is the character of abu jahl and the other character is prophet sallallahu himself and there is a character of the listeners, you and I, who are watching, witnessing this encounter. Sheikh, is this... Assalamu uh, alaikum, Sheikh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Will this be a fair summary of what we 
heard yesterday. Yeah, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So yesterday we we kind of um, talked about the, this section of the the Quran, Surah Al-Alaq, which um, is a narrative um, a kind of explanation and um, a presentation of the, the events that took place in life of the Prophet Sallallahu specifically related to Abu Jahl. So Abu Jahl is historically a very famous um, individual. And you've kind of personified it in three three characters, three um, um, individuals who are part of this narrative. One is the Prophet Ali Salatu Salam, who is the elevated prophetic character, noble character. And then you have Abu Jahl, who represents um, the complete opposite, the nemesis. The nemesis is a kind of the other side of the coin. Um, and then we are brought into it, like yourself, myself, in the reading of the Quran, Ara'ita. So, Ara'ita, essentially, it's asking for your opinion. But remember, when you ask for opinion, when something's very, very clear, it doesn't require you to say yes or no. It's a rhetorical question. It means that it's clear. It should be very, very clear what the answer should be. Um, and so that's the three um, components of the chapter, this section of the, of the Quran. And it's asking us to make a judgment, you know, to choose sides in a sense. Because Fir'aun... Um, I mentioned before is is described in the Quran as having committed tughyan. So hmm. ila innahu tagha. So Allah says this to the Prophet Musa Ali go to Pharaoh because he has he is he's encapsulated tughyan. Uh, tagha in Arabic can mean to over I mean in the Quran it also uses the verb the verb the verbal forms of tagha to mean like um a, a, a kind of a tsunami or a flood, you know. So it's like this. This, um, you know, it's when something explodes beyond its, its normal um, realm, and it goes beyond the bounds of what it should be doing, and it becomes oppressive. That is called tughyan. So when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says that, it is it's interesting because the Prophet Ali also said that um, Abu Jahl is the the Fir'aun of this community. So, hmm. so. It's interesting that when the Prophet is being presented with his arch, arch nemesis, the arch enemy of him on in his mission, historically the mission, it is Abu Hakam. Abu Hakam, that's what his name was, Abu, Abu Amr ibn Hisham. He was from the, the tribe of Bani Makhzum. Makhzum was a very powerful, it was like a warrior tribe. It was an arrogant tribe. And remember, Khalid ibn Walid is from that tribe as well. He became Muslim mm. and he... And he and he used his military powers, but they were they were they had this um, this thing in for Bani Hashim um, on the on the back of Bani Abdul Manaf, Prophet's direct tribe, on the on the basis that they were given the kind of custodianship of the religious rights of the Kaaba. So, in terms of order, you know, even if you look at you look at uh, um, pre-partition India, for example, you look at Hinduism. It has a caste system. The caste system is made up of different levels. At the top of it is a priestly class, you know, the Brahman class, which is in charge of the the the, um, the place of worship and so on and so forth. And then you have the the, the warrior class, and then you have the, the farmer class, and then you have the kind of slave underbelly of society, and you have the kind of untouchables. That's how even to this day um, Hinduism classifies human beings. And so at the top, in pre-modern societies, it was always like that, that the priestly class, the people that had 
the custodianship of worship and devotion to the to the Creator um, were the most elevated of people. And so Bani Makhzum always had this thing in for the tribe of the Prophet historically, because they were even though they were warriors, they weren't given the highest class. And so Dorian here is to this arrogance that comes out of wanting something you can never get. And so this happens in day-to-day life as well. If you if you are unqualified for something, but you still want it, you, you end up doing things which are outside what you should be doing to get what you get. So if you're uneducated and you're defeated in, a, in, a, in an argument or, or a debate, then you lash out. This is what people do. They lash out or they ignore or they... They do something that is not involved with the thing that they should be doing, which is to educate themselves and then engage. So Torian is is one of these things which is mentioned about Fir'aun. It's mentioned here um, about Abu Jahl as well. The reason why it's mentioned about Abu Jahl is because he's he's mimicking the mindset of, um, you would say, Fir'aun. So it's it's an interesting thing. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in this specific uh, context, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is um, mentioning this. And there is a, numer- a number of things that are, are pr- probably quite important to understand. But it's important, to, I think, in a historical sense to understand this from the life of the Prophet Ali Because, you know, Abu Jahal, he was an initial called Abu, Abu al-Hakam. Um, he had his own trajectory. He saw the Prophet as him coming and becoming the the spokesperson for this religious um, tendency within Quraysh society. And it's well known that his end is not good. He's, he's killed in the Battle of Badr by, I think it was Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. And what is interesting that throughout his life, he was considered to be at the forefront of, of torturing people that entered into Islam. He's famously known to have um, tortured Sumayya um, bin Khayyat radiallahu anha, the first person that was martyred, in fact, the mother of Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anhu, a very heart-wrenching narrative of of being tied up and, and, and being given deprived of water and being tortured and then being stabbed, essentially, and left to bleed to death. So there's a number of things that I think come to mind when you talk about this chapter and the chapter and the way that it ties in with the historical narrative of Fir'aun and also the end as well. The end of Fir'aun is a tragic end, but it's a humiliating end. The end of Abu Jahl is a tragic end for him, but it's a, it's a, it's a necessarily a humiliating end. And it all comes from the fact that what, com- what goes around comes around. You know, you'll know this, this idea of whatever you do will also track back and come back to you. And this is why with um, you know Abu Jahl, he, in, in this situation, we mentioned yesterday the kind of narratives that are mentioned in Hadith collections about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and praying and then um, Abu Jahl saying, if I see him pray, I'm going to stamp on his neck. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. But he does, you know, prior to this, he, he instigates um, opposition to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And later on, he does throw the entrails of a very famous narrative that he he saw the Prophet as him praying, and he was just so moved in hate with hatred against the Prophet as him that he asked one of the young 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 people in, in, amongst him, amongst them, 
to get the entrails of camel. So you slaughter a camel, you get the, whatever comes out of the stomach that you don't eat. He said, bring it. And he brought, they brought in a bucket and they, and they poured it over, over the Prophet while he's praying. And what happened is that at that point, the Prophet Ali Wasallam got up for prayer. And it was his, it was, it was his daughter, uh, Fatima radiallahu, and that cleaned the Prophet from the entrails of the camel that were thrown on the back of the, of the Prophet by Abu Jahl. And it shows... The, this dogyan, this kind of over overwhelming sense of anger and enmity, which blinds you to thinking correctly, and this is the same thing with um, uh, Fir'aun that his 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 arrogance and his enmity to truth and his enmity to the prophets that were sent to Bani Israel was such that it led him to oppression of other people. And this is the same thing because Daha in Arabic actually means something that's very elevated. So the kind of tip of a mountain or the higher portion of a plateau is is also derived from the same root. And it's because the higher you get, you know, the more notoriety you get, even in public life, to be honest, um, the more famous you get, the more notorious you get, the more um, coverage you get, the higher you get, the, the faster you and the, and the harder you fall. But the higher you get, the more arrogant you get as well. The sense of entitlement, the sense of privilege, the sense of invincibility, which comes all the time. And people in that situation have to be humbled by prophets. And this is why prophets, when they come, they come from the lowest um, lay of the land. You know, they're not they're not the kind of military leaders. They, they're brought up to that. Like the Prophet Da'ud, the Prophet Suleiman, and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as well, brought up from a normal life, hmm. a normal life of being a shepherd, of being a carpenter, of being um, you know, a person that just deals with day-to-day things. They, they work themselves up with humility, and when they get to the pinnacle, when they get to the pinnacle, like Yusuf Wasallam, they get to the pinnacle with humility. And so if you think of, the you know the, the the brothers of Yusuf Ali Salat was somebody oppressed him. They they overstepped the mark with him, you know. And and when he had to deal with them when they came into his 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 company at the end of the story of, of Yusuf Ali Salat was some, he forgives them because that is the the clemency that is the mark the, the calling card of prophets. He said, "Let And so when you see the Prophet Asim in the same situation in the conquest of Mecca al Mukarrama, what you see is he has worked himself up from the humility of Ghari Hira to the majesty of conquering the city in which he is born and then meeting the people that were oppressive to him and his and his companions and the ones that tortured his companions, the ones that threw him out of the city. And he Prophet remember he when he left the city of Mecca Muqarma, he looked back in it and he said, How beautiful are you and how beloved are you to me? And if it wasn't for the fact that my community threw me out. I would never have left you. This is the love he had for Mecca al Muqarrama. And in fact, the Prophet, you know, if you go just go back right to the beginning of the chapter, Surah Alaq, the Prophet goes to visit Waraq ibn Nawfal. And, mm. and I remember the, the, what comes up in that narrative is um, Waraqa says they're going, to, they're going to evict you from Mecca. And the Prophet said, You know, he, he couldn't believe. He couldn't fathom the fact it would get to the point that he would have to be expelled from and exiled from the city that he loved so much. He couldn't, he couldn't understand it. So even Arabic, you know, will they even 
think of that? Will they even contemplate it? Will it actually happen? It happened. Hmm. And that was a Turian. That was a Turian of Abu Jahal and all of the all the, all of his compatriots. And he was in fact called the Asad. He was called the lion of of the of the of the of the people that, that were um, of the Ahlaf, the people that opposed the Prophet because he was always the one that instigated violence against the Prophet. In fact, at one point he 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 really viciously attacked the Prophet. And it's very famous in, in Sirah, Hamza radiallahu anhu was coming back from hunting and he came and he, he was about to go and do the tawaf as he always did because he was a religious person, but he was a polytheist at the time. He wasn't a Muslim. And he met a woman and she said, did you see what Abu Jahl, you know, at that time Abu Hakam, it did to your your nephew? And he said, no. And she said she he insulted him and viciously attacked him. And he, and he went straight to Abu Jahl. He didn't say, what did you do? He cracked him in the jaw. And he says, what do you say of a person for whom I am the defender hmm. and whose religion I am on. Which <laughs> is, in, in Syria, it's like one of these situations is like, bang, it's like a, a mic drop moment, as they say, where everything just, the, 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 the Syria takes a completely different turn. The moment that he, he smashes Abu Jahl, you know, this supposed lion in the, in the jaw, and Abu Jahl is not weak. He just looks at him, mm. and he basically says, "Okay, what happened again?" <laughs> you know, this is like taming the lion. It's like yeah. you know, that's when the the this the, the the zookeeper comes in, the lions roar. You know, you know, have in Turkish. Um, you know, the, the dogs bark and the caravan con- continues, and mm. lions roar. And when the you know the lion roars, but when the zookeeper comes, you know, with his whip, and mm-hmm. and hum- humbles the lion, it's everything you know falls into place because lions are ferocious. But human beings are intelligent, and any time hmm. you have a, 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 a kind of situation where the lion and, and and the human comes into contact, lions never win because we they might be the, the, they might be the the, the um, they always call them the the kings of the jungle of the jungle. But the thing is, you know, that's 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 not true because lions don't live in jungles. But anyway, that's a different issue. They live in savannas and flatlands. It's, t- it's tigers that live in, in, in jungles. But it's interesting that this in parallel of Fir'aun and Abu Jahl is something mm. the Prophet is saying, this is what's going to happen. And obviously we know the story of Fir'aun. The Prophet is told that because he knows what will happen to uh, Fir'aun. He's just told it for Tasalli. He's told it. And cyclically, this is the same thing. In human history, this is the same thing. There is this I mean, a question that always is under discussion that, okay, you can find Abu Jahls, you can find Fir'auns, but uh, we are weak, and is there ever going to be a character who will match Prophet ﷺ? Not. So, Prophet ﷺ, the way he, he displayed humility, the way he humbled himself, he, he conquered the same city that he was ousted from, and and the way he entered the city again, and he, how he forgave, is this something, okay, we are asked to emulate, but can we ever? Can we ever emulate? The thing is, we can never, um, we can never um, compete. We, like, we know that. Like, there's no, yeah. a Muslim trying to compete with the Prophet is not even, a, it's not even a, on the table as a discussion. But what is on the table as discussion is, it's where, like, what's on the table as discussion is that you know the blueprint 
and then you try and book follow the blueprint. That's it. Hmm. And so, even non-Muslims that take follow the blueprint achieve. Like Nelson Mandela, I was speaking to somebody yesterday about Nelson Mandela and some of his. I think you mentioned it, Ibrahim Rasul. Was it yourself? I think we were discussing something hmm. in South Ibrahim Africa. Rasul, yes. Yeah, and yes, and he was telling me something yeah, a story because yeah. this person did a, a podcast with him, and he was saying that when he interviewed him, he was asking how did Muslims, you know, deal with the issue of apar- apartheid. And um, and what happened is he said that Ibrahim Rasul was approached and um, Nelson Mandela, when he was released from prison, he, in fact, before that, he he told Ibrahim Rasul, get you, get the Muslims ready for the fight against apartheid mm. and the oppression that was there. And when he came out, he went to meet Ibrahim Rasul and he said, are you ready? Are the Muslims ready? And he said, mm. what do you mean ready? He says, are they ready to bring down apartheid? Because apartheid is essentially about just the freedom to exist. Freedom to the, the prophetic call was to banish this idea of race and ethnicity and class being something through which you actually segregate people. It wasn't even prejudice. It's not. We're not talking about hate speech. We're talking about the fact that you're living in um, prisons based upon the color of your skin from the moment you're born. And so, mm-hmm. what happened is Nelson Mandela. You know, in, in modern human history, there is no um, manifestation of the prophetic model, I believe, better than Nelson Mandela's in terms of um, diffusing after he'd, he'd done what he'd done, he, he dismantled apartheid, dis- diffusing that thing to the point that, you know, the, the en- en- animosity against white white Africans and the, the natives of that land was diffused to the degree that it could be humanly possible, I think. You know, even though there's, I mean, if you think of what happened during apartheid and then how it just dissolved smoothly, it was all in the back of this very intelligent, very humble man. And very, very um, dignified man. You know, if you look at what he talks about, when you know, Miller Protect Palestine and Al-Quds, you know, his stance on Quds, for example, you know, so principled. You know, such a principled take on everything that he wasn't swayed by you know, the fact that he was courted by the West and almost like he could have been the perfect poster boy for the West. But he didn't refuse. Mm-hmm. When he came and he was asked about Palestine, for example, he put everybody in their place to the point that everyone was gasping, saying, "Is he? oh, you're supposed to be the poster boy of liberal values and all the rest of it. And he's saying, look, this is... The, this is in some ways worse than what we were suffering during mm. apartheid. And so Ibrahim Rasul and Nelson Mandela, these people, they ended up prioritizing things. And then the blueprint of the Prophet of overcoming social tyranny, they essentially applied it. And so the problem we have is, if you go come into the modern age without m- mentioning examples and situations, we refuse to use that methodology, and we insist on allowing the the, the very the very modus operandi of Fir'aun to dictate how we should act, which is mm-hmm. which is again attack with violence and uh, attack with what they attack us with, mm-hmm. uh, and and the intelligent person is seeing if we are being. Um, cornered in a situation, we look to how we can remove ourselves from that and not just say they're using something, we use it. Violence is a perfect example. In this day and age, the use of violence in in a way that it can be misrepresented 
by your enemy to show that you are aggressive is is a counterproductive strategy. Mm. Every intelligent person knows that. But we insist on doing everything the same way. But with the Prophet ﷺ, this idea of gradation and analyzing and long-term planning is something that the Prophet would have thought about and insisted on because it's the way the Prophet allowed his 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 whole life to evolve and he allowed the implementation of his prophetic um you know blueprint to be imposed upon a society to be applied and to be taken up by society successfully and when he so, left I mean, it he left it we we, we, ha- we have the confidence in saying and believing that okay prophet sallam did uh, what he did his teachings are for us to follow without a shadow of a doubt in, in a sense that, oh, oh, he was a prophet. I mean, there is always an argument, oh, he was a prophet. We can't do this. We, we can't be ever at that standard. So how, how can we do, well, why are you asking us to do what he did? Because we can't. He was a prophet. He he had mm-hmm. divine intervention on daily basis, on hourly basis, maybe on, on every moment basis. Mm-hmm. And whatever he spoke, he spoke out of Wahi, not himself. Uh, and the, the what he wrongs that exist how do we with confidence say that we can do we we can follow the example of prophet sallam and be exactly the way or very similar to the way he was well the thing is um in in any kind of plan you have the optimum the, the way that this is the plan this is how you should do it if you can't do it you do as close as it as you can so the whole point of having the optimum, which is the most perfect way of doing something, is that if you want to, you know, make a car, if you want to paint, uh, you know, a, a sketch, for example, you want to make anything, there's a perfect way of doing it. If I say to you, you know, can you make a knife for me from scratch? Like, mm. you, what we can do, I'll show you how to do it. You might not have the equipment, you might not have the expertise. At the end, you'll come up with something trying to get to where I am. So... I'll say the perfect example. If somebody showed me a Damascian um, metal um, dagger a couple of days ago, and uh, he was saying, well, this is something something that was made by one of my um, friends, and this is what he does, and it was amazing. But I said to him, like, Damascian um, steel, modern man doesn't know how they made Damascian steel. It was much stronger in the past. So this is like what they did in the past, modern man cannot do. Hmm. So if you asked, like, Elon Musk to make... Damascus steel, he can't do it. He's, how much how many billions does he have? Can't do it. So even if, but you don't say, well, Damascus steel, you don't. It's irrelevant. It's relevant because it, it creates a, the benchmark. And so the Prophet, when he came, he created a benchmark. And so if you can't get to ninety five percent of it, you get to fifty. If you can't get fifty, you get to five. If you can't get to five, you get to one. The point is, that is the ask is that. And the closer you get to it as a community, the closer you get to it, the better you become and the closer success you become. And so if you, if you fail, you try again. And this is the thing that our community doesn't, doesn't like. I know because I ed- educate this, why I teach. People want to come into our you know, classes that we do in our syllabus and they want to learn everything within a couple of weeks. And mm. five years later, they're saying, oh, we need to, you know, they realize, oh, you can't learn this this quickly. And there has to be some kind of humility and hum- humbleness at all times, even the- when you've finished years and years of study. And so what happens there is this humbling experience that you have to plan. 
And, and success does not come in any field of human endeavor overnight. You know this. And why do I have to say this? If, if it's so clear, nothing in human life, unless you want to let, win the lottery, and it's got the whole, it's got, you know, there's studies done on, this came to my mind actually, studies on people that win lotteries. And I read all these studies. You know why I read all these studies? Hmm. Because it gives you insight into human behavior. And because when you're, when you're speaking to somebody and they I don't know what they're talking about, <coughs> It's actually good to come up with studies that show that what they're saying is completely incorrect. There's studies done on human um, happiness and people that win lotteries. Within um, a year of winning a lottery, people that won the lottery in terms of, you know, sense sense of happiness and fulfillment is below, well below people who haven't won it. In fact, are in the opposite, are going through difficulties. Like there's this curve and it goes way under where they were at the start. Yeah. So imagine you were here and then your happiness goes up and then it goes down, it gets to where it was and it, and it dives. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. And that's because you got, you've, 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 you've changed the sunnah of Allah. The sunnah of Allah is you go up, up step by step saying, Alhamdulillah, shukru lillah, Alhamdulillah, shukru lillah. You get to the top and you say, La tathrib alaykum al-yawm, or you say, Alhamdulillah, ala ni'matil islam. You get and you get to the pinnacle and you do sajda, like you do what the Prophet Yusuf did when he became the, the, the highest courtier in the land. You, you do what the Prophet did when he conquered Mecca al Muqarramah. You become more humble because you've done it step by step. Now, the Ummah, what does it want? And, and this came up, you know, in this whole discussion we've been having on the political situation and, and this issue of takfir we've been talking about. Everyone is so um, embarrassed by their own silence over the last um, 10 years that they want to essentially. Um, you know, they want to lash out at something and they want to make themselves feel good. Hmm. It's not the sunnah of Allah that you you get what you want by being angry over the next, over the last week or month or whatever and just not looking at the fact of where were you in, all, in this whole situation. You know, in the moment it comes back to individual, I know it's myself, then you look at yourself and, and you say, okay, and this whole scenario, this whole play, this whole um, pantomime that's playing out, where were you in this whole situation? The more people are vocal, the more you, more you know that they're complicit. Hmm, hmm, hmm. And the only way you can you can hide your complicity and your cowardice is to lash out and to be, you know, kind of more, more strict and more um, dismissive and more uh, ignorant and insist on your ignorance. And this is knowledgeable people as well. So this is, it, it, you know, the, the, this is when the, the, the hens come back to roost. Hmm. You know, this is when the, the hands come because at that point the tuhyan is the only way you can respond to it. You can only do it by, you know, just lashing out everybody. And what's the path of wisdom? The, the path of wisdom is to take stock. So take stock and say, okay, what's happening? Okay, this is the situation. This is the Sharia rules. This is the social um, kind of concern we should have. This is the kind of political kind of. Um, you know things that we should be doing. That's an intelligent thing to do, but the stupid thing to do is is what's ha- been happening over the last you know month or so. You know, played out as a co- a comedy, mm. uh, and in that comedy, there's very few lines. Surah Alak Yanha. Did you see him who forbids? And Abudan Ida Salla, a servant of Allah, when he prays. And then it goes on to Did you consider what if he is on the right way? 
and this is for me and you who are watching and enjoying Spy T. Uh, a short ad break, and inshallah, I'm going to ask Sheikh the, the connection and the meaning of this ayah and enjoying Spy T. How do we do that? Do we have a duty towards uh, looking at this ayah and and making ourselves available for enjoining piety. Ad break and we'll be right back, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the entirely merciful, the especially merciful. No. But indeed, man transgresses because he sees himself self-sufficient. Indeed, to your Lord is the return. Have you seen the one who forbids a servant when he prays? Have you seen if he is upon guidance? Or enjoins righteousness? Have you seen if he denies and turns away? Does he not know that Allah sees? No, if he does not desist, we will surely drag him by the forelock. A lying, sinning forelock. Then let him call his associates. We will call the angels of hell. No, do not obey him, but prostrate and draw near to Allah. Rajah Ramadan, Reflections. Uh, I'm your host, Dubair Akram, with my guest, Sheikh Rizwan. Uh, today, iftar is that going to is going to be at eight eighteen eighteenth of Ramadan, 9th of April, twenty twenty three. Just before the break, uh, we Sheikh, uh, this this ayah now, the the next one, Aw Amara no, Araita Ladi in Kan Al Huda. Even before that, Araita Ladi Yanha Abdan Ida Salla, and a servant when he prays, and then it goes on to Araita in Kan Al Huda. Did you consider what if he what if he's on the right way and enjoins piety? Is it for us and how does it relate to us? Yeah, so I think we did talk, we did cover this. Uh, or did we cover this yesterday? Um, no, um, not on this one, not this particular hour. Oh, okay, so let's have a look then. So, and enjoins piety. All right, okay, so yeah, so it's asking us to make a a, a distinction it's asking us to make an observation the observation is essentially um in a situation where you have an oppressor and an oppressed okay essentially mm-hmm. you're looking at the story it's very clear who's the oppressor who's the oppressed it's then asking you you know araita araita is looking for your and this is in fact a very very um powerful 
method in the Quran to convince people and to educate people and to persuade people. Persuasion is a very interesting art. The art of persuasion, the art of convincing, the art, art of bringing people around to, to a view that you have is a very, um, you know, a kind of very precious skill. In marketing, for example, marketing is all based upon convincing you to buy this rather than that. So you've got numerous companies selling the same thing. And essentially, this is exactly the same thing. But the way of doing it, it's like, um, you know, Nike, for example. Is it Nike or Nike? I don't know how you pronounce Nike. it. Nike. Nike, yeah. Nike. So, Nike. Yeah, I, I think, or was it Apple? It was Apple or Nike. So they had this very famous campaign, advertising campaign. And I think it was, it was the first campaign, it, it was Apple actually, in which the it might, it might be wrong actually with Nike, in which they essentially didn't, it didn't market what they were doing or what they were selling. They were, they were saying that we ally ourselves with these great people. So it was like Muhammad Ali. Um, it was like um, Nelson Mandela. So people that everyone wants to be like, they were saying we should be like them. And who are we? We're Apple or we're Nike. Hmm. So the whole thing is that you you get people to buy into this sense of, I think Nike as well, they do this thing of just do it. So in other just words, it. it's empowering you. It's not saying we're Nike. Whereas Adidas is the opposite. Adidas is always saying we're Adidas and Adidas makes you run faster and this and that. People don't care about that. People want to be enticed into making a decision based upon their own their own choice. In other words, you you have to ally with the emotion of the person. So the Quran, the reason I'm saying this is because in the Quran it has this all the time. Ara'ita. It's the moment it says, uh, "Do you not think? You know, or do you not mm. consider?" It's pulling you as a, as a as a listener, looking at this situation. It's saying, "What do you think of this? You know, let's 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 talk about this." Ara'ita yanha. Look at let's have a look at this. What do you think of this person that forbids yanha abdan idha salla? A person who just prays. A servant, mm-hmm. Abd. So Abd is used here because it's an honor of the Prophet, first of all. But what, come, what I'm thinking about is, I don't know if it's mentioned in Tafsir books, but Abd is also mentioned because Abd is not competing with you for anything. Do you know when you think mm-hmm. of, you know, mm-hmm. Abu Jahl, he's thinking, oh, I want to have leadership of the the Meccan society, I want to have privilege, I want to be sitting at the table meeting and signing letters to Khusro and the Byzantians and the cops. I want to be this person everyone comes to, to my house to yeah, no, he wants that. And he he thinks he's competing with the Prophet for this, you know, worldly privilege. Mm-hmm. And and Allah is saying to us, not saying to Abu Jahl, he's saying, do you know what do you think of this person who forbids Abdan Ida Salah? Not mm-hmm. the king do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, there's, there's no comparison at all because one is competing for something which is dear to him, uh, mm-hmm. the, the world, the, the, the jaw. Yeah. The jaw, the jaw, the jaw. Jaw. Mm. <laughs> Hubba ja. Yeah, the love Hubba of ja. prestige, notoriety. Prestige. Usko to jaw chahiye. Lekin abd ko to jaw chahiye nahi. Exactly. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. Like your games, you know, even in this whole thing that was happening over the last couple of weeks, I was thinking these are games. Like there's essentially a game going on here for clicks mm. and likes and 
echo chambers and all the rest of it and feeling good about yourself. So the Quran is in this situation is, is doing this master stroke of the reader who will read this in the future is asked to, to give an opinion because the Quran does consider your opinion to be important for yourself, not for not for truth, but for you to change. So it says, you know, what do you think? If you've seen this person who forbids, forbids what? Oh, forbids a simple servant when he prays to God, not when he vies with you for political authority and power and privilege in a tribe or a society. He's just, so what do you think then? Is he on the right path? Like, come on, tell me. Between you and me, it's like, do you think this person's righteous? On truth and huda, which is like the right path, you know, hmm. huda is like this path which is clear and pure and correct. Oh, Umar Abid Taqwa, do you think he's ordering something which is virtuous? So taqwa here doesn't mean in our sense of God consciousness, it means virtuous because it's obvious he, he wants to be virtuous. You know, Abu Jahl wants to be virtuous. It's It's a good quality to be virtuous and to be allied with noble qualities and so we're in this conversation voting essentially like we're essentially being asked to vote personally we're saying i think yes yes he's he should do that he should stop our servant from praying public this is what happened in france and you know in switzerland they're banning the building of minarets for example and in in Mm. france they're um refusing um women going into public spaces with with headscarves on it's the same thing you you take this verse and you apply it to the French context, it's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Do you not see the person that forbids a servant, and in this situation a female servant, who's trying to get around and live her faith as she ins- insists that she should, when they're Sheikh, just being obedient? Just for, yeah, just, just for kind of taking a pause and coming to this day and age just right now, Mm-hmm. Where, where do you see, is this a fear of something that's causing uh, some of the Western nations to do what they're doing? What, what's the mm. fear? What's the underlying fear? Is it bigotry? Is it fear? Uh, fantastic is question. It's a fantastic question. I did a course. I, I, I would do courses. I did a course, yeah. Islam in the West. And essentially, my I think if you want to summarize it is, the West has no has no has no identity, and it fears oh, wow. looking into the into the mirror and seeing nothing, and so it has to kill the only thing that has entity and identity, which is Islam. Simple as that. And if you want to mm-hmm. go deep down, you want to deep dive in this, and you just want to see what the issue is. It's they have nothing. Their values are defined by what Islam is not. So their values are defined no. by. Yeah. What, what Islam? They have it's not Islam. I mean, okay. Sheikh, okay. J- just compare hospital with hospital. A hospital in Lahore and a hospital in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Okay. The humanity, the the humanity that is prevalent there, the, the care, the, the ultimate care, mm-hmm. and then the commercialism. Mm-hmm. Here is a Muslim land, and here is a Western place, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, regard for traffic, stopping, uh, looking. Um, yeah, I understand. I understand exactly what you're saying. You're jumping so, onto. Where's this? Yeah, this is this is this is different from what you asked. You, I didn't ask this. You didn't ask this. You said, "What does 
why are Western nations oppressing um, Muslims and Muslim identity? So that was your question, wasn't it? And I, I, I said well, what, at the identity what's, what's, level, what's the, what's the underlying fear? But then you say they have they have nothing. What I'm saying is what what you observe, what you live, you wonder what is it that we have missed. No, that's a different. And that's a different. What, so what, what this, is they have imbibed? Yeah, so this is um, it's numerous logical fallacies in that, in that proposition because you what you're saying is what what why do the West fear? What is it about Islam that they don't want that is encroaching into public life? A person just being religious in public life. Okay, you could join with what you're saying. If I wanted to join up and and say, okay, this is what you meant, is that if we allow religion to come into public life, our societies will become like Muslim societies. Okay, I, that, that's that's the best you can salvage from that, because you'll say, okay, the reason why they're stopping women with hijabs going to a school, for example, is this is going to lead to one step up, creeping Sharia or whatever, or a slippery slope. If you allow Muslims to do this, the next thing you know, they'll have Muslim hospitals which will have really poor um, patient care and all the rest of it. That's the kind of argument. But this is an argument in logic called ab absurdum, which is it, it's just going nowhere but let's just run with that okay. okay the reasons for all this stuff in muslim muslim certain muslim lands not all muslim lands like in turkey for example the health system here public health system here is i had to call the ambulance like two months ago it came in i think 11 10 minutes or something okay it, it was like i hadn't even put the phone down put my shoes on and, and the ambulance was outside and the care and the and the and the processing of it Actually, it's better than in in, in Britain because I, I spent eight months trying to get a consultant to recognize that they'd t- lost my files. You know, so mm. I understand what you're saying, but that's built upon. You know, if you want to actually talk about that, that's built on um, centuries of of actual of, of privileged colonialism. Which I mean, you think of the amount of wealth taken out of pre pre partition India by the British Empire. Mm. We're talking about trillions of dollars. Trillions. Do you understand? But, but, and but, on the but, back of that, you build infrastructure, you build, you leverage that. And then obviously that is why, you know, if you look at post-partition India and look at Pakistan, for example, um, they've set in, in place systems which 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 will which will always lead to the, the nation itself not being able to better itself. And so there's the re- in Africa is the same thing. The French um, new colonialist project in in Africa, for example, is exactly the same. It's the same as going there and, and putting people in chains. It's worse. And so, you know, the the, the comparison of public li- like Muslim public life and Muslim lands and and services and debt and economic situation is not related to Islam in as much as it's related to the the Dorian of the West. The complicity of the West in setting up systems. This is well known. I don't have to argue this case. The systems that have been no, set I mean, up. No, no, I'm, I'm genuinely, genuinely asking the, the, this, these two things. One is the, the claim they have nothing. What I'm saying is that they have. No, no. In terms values. of list, the claim is no, no. I'm talking about. I we're talking about identity. The thing that because it goes back to your original question is why are the West doing this to Muslims, and why are they so hateful towards Muslims, it's because, I mean, where Europe in, in, throughout its history has always defined itself not by what Europe is, but by, by what Islam is. 
and meaning that we are not Muslims. The moment you take Islam out of the, the picture, what brings Europe together is a number of values that they themselves don't agree with. And so the thing that unifies the West is this hatred of Islam. Historically, through the Byzantine incursions with the Prophet to the Crusades, to the, the Ottoman Wars, the, the Battle of Vienna, and the, the Muslim encroachments, Umayyad encroachments into France, for example, always defined Europe. So any time so they define themselves. Are we, are we saying the Renaissance, the French Renaissance is defined by Muslim hate? Are we saying that the values that the, the, the West is built upon is is based on the hatredness of another nation? Like so the liberal any, values. So if you if you want to look at what the West is, like how it how it's different from the East or the how Europe is different from like Turkey, for example. Okay. Sarkozy, who was the, the previous president of, of France, he, he in his memoirs he opposed he, he explained why he opposed Turkish membership to the European Union. And he says, how can we allow, essentially, how can we allow um, into, into, into our European club, a nation which is by its very entity not European, i.e. Muslim? So, you know, the moment that you had to say, okay, who can come into the European Union, who can't? It wasn't about <clears throat> geography, it wasn't about um, social criteria, economic criteria, um, conditions to membership. It was about they're Muslims. Hmm. In other words, the thing that we are is a, is a Christian club, and in fact, not even that. Now it's, it's a historically Christian. They're all atheists. You know, the majority of Europe is edging on the precipice of atheism. What, what, but what defines them, we become Christian as a culture the moment that Islam is brought into comparison with us. That's the point I'm making. That the reason why you have Western um, pushback on Islam specifically is that it, it, it reminds them of what they have lost, which is any kind of religious impulse. And the fact that Islam takes itself seriously, Muslims take themselves seriously as a religious tradition. And that in and of itself is um, a sufficient reason why the West is caught off guard in this situation. Now, think of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. All these things have their root. The good of it has its root in Islamic. The Renaissance, for example, has its root in the transmission of Greek philosophy and Arab logic and, and learning in through the Umayyad um, dynasties into France and into Italy, um, Bologna University, Paris University. These are all built on the, the 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 basic principles of Muslim universities, studied and well researched. This is how they started this the period of Renaissance and Enlightenment. Essentially, they they wanted to copy what Muslim intellectuals had been doing. Hmm. So this is the enlightened of the European minds. Erasmus, you've got. Um, Nietzsche, you've got, um, you know, Goethe, you've got all these great, great thinkers, Aquinas imbued with understandings of Islamic theology. So the best of it they took, but the thing, once atheism and the, the, the emotion of religion became the, the calling card in Europe after the 70s, then Islam became like a thorn, <clears throat> a thorn aside, side. And this is why this verse, which we're talking about, becomes absolutely relevant. Have you not seen the person that forbids, forbids the servant? Have you not seen the one that forbids, forbids the servant when they pray? In other words, shows outward manifestation of devotion. That they don't, They're not there to take your power. Like a woman in France going about her business in a public institution is not there to undermine the state. 
She just wants to manifest her religious faith. And the whole thing is that they think that's not the case. They think, and this is, if you read French commentary on this, they'll say, well, she's there to undermine the state. They're, she's there to um, sport Islamist tendencies, to undermine the secular nature of laicity in the French state. She's not. She's just there because her faith and her connection to her creator is such that she says, this is how I manifest it. And so this story, which is the story of um, the Prophet with Abu Jahl, is a story of Musa with um, Fir'aun, is a story of, you know, um, Aisha in Paris trying to go go to school. Same story. Hmm. You know, history repeats itself. Rinse and repeat. Everything is simple because at the end of it, there's a very clear paradigm of people that insist on inbuilt privilege and power. And the fear of that is taken away by people that are principled. Simple as that. You just be principled. You don't have to have any army. You don't have to have <clears throat> power at all. You just have to have the principle. Listen, Nelson Mandela came out of prison. He had a principle. The principle was the prophetic principle that every single person on the face of this earth, regardless of skin and ethnicity, is exactly the same in the eyes of God. That's his principle. That principle, he had nothing else. What did he have? Hmm. He had the principle. He said, who's going to go come stand behind me on that principle? That's all he did. He didn't have any arm struggle. He said, I've got this principle which is which is more mighty than any any nation that we have. More mighty than the fact that Britain insisted on supporting the apartheid regime under Thatcher, for example. America insisted on, on supporting it. Every single Western nation insisted on supporting the apartheid nation. And he just came out of prison and said, guys, I've got this principle that to differentiate between a people on the basis of the color of your skin is oppression. Who's, on, who's with me on that? That's all he did. Hmm. Nothing else. And then all of a sudden, everyone falls in line. Because the moment you make it clear on that in that way, the moment you, you say, this is the principle we're talking about here, without muddying it, and, and always in these situations, the moment that you dither, and you, well, say, oh, oh, well, you know, there's a reason why we have apartheid, and there's economic factors, and this and that, and I don't like this, and I don't like that, and if we allow black people to have their own privileged political status, this is going to happen. Once you dither on any issue that is clear, you're, you've lost. Hmm. So this is the thing in life. You'd never dither on things that are clear. You can, you the things that people disagree upon, they're in the background. You know, in important situations, you make the one statement very clear. Everything else falls in place after that. So this is like apartheid. He just made a very clear decision. Every other, um, you know, subsection of arguments fell in place behind that. Same thing with any, think of any issue you can think about in modern day and age, Muslim or non-Muslim issue. It's the same thing. What is the thing that's non-negotiable in this situation? Your bickering on other things is irrelevant. What's the, what's the thing that you cannot, and I remember this is the thing, this is the reason why I, I, I spoke about Tikfir so clearly, is that mm. in all of these things, that is the one thing that you, you do not touch because it's, it's like Al Ghazali said, Al Mustafadu min la ilaha illallah la yuzulu illa bi yaqeen. Now that is like the, 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 the pillar of la ilaha. He's saying that the, the pillar of la ilaha illallah, the protection it gives yeah. you, cannot be removed except by something that is absolute. 
And so that is the big, big principle in, the, in that discussion. And in this discussion, it's very simple. You know, who's with me on the fact that people can have the ability to practice their faith freely? Hmm. Everyone should so have we, that. We end, end today's reflections on saying that the fear of the West is they don't have identity. The, the, no, this is an, that's not what I said. I said... The the thing that the the West fears is the moment you take Islam out of the equation, and you're left looking at the mirror of yourself and who you, what your values are and who you are. There's so many different things that you, there's nothing at the core of that that defines you as Europe, for example. Historically, I said, historically Europe always defined itself as being the land which was not Islamic. Historically. And to this day, that's the, it. Still falls back into this 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 situation now. The West is insisting, and Europe specifically is insisting that we're going to continue that defining. And that's one of the big battles for Muslims in the West now. One of the big struggles of the Muslims in the West is that they have to start to be influential in public discourse to the point that they say, "Look, that's the old Europe. The new Europe, the new Europe is different." If you look at, and this was, a, I was actually watching a video I did. On you know, I did the gender course um, a couple of years last year or something, and I did a live Q and A. There was a section there about Douglas Murray. Douglas Murray is homosexual. Okay, very famous right wing um, public figure, a commentator, and he wrote an article um, warning the Europe of the fact that it will not be able to populate itself mm. because Muslims, the Muslim population is increasing in Europe. He said to the point that Europe will become Muslim. And, I, I, and I, as a joke, I said to him, Douglas Murray, do something. Do something about it. <laughs> and you know what that means? Like, well, yeah. you've, you've, decided, you've decided through your life choices. Like, you can't argue a case and then, as a man, you can't do anything about it. Yep. So, <laughs> so the thing is, that fear... <laughs> so it was, I don't know where that just came I was like, I was with um, Hassan Rabani, we were talking. It just came to my mind because I, I watched so much stuff. Because I like to know what's happening yeah. in the world. And um, yeah. not to have anything against his lifestyle. He's a non-Muslim. He can do what he wants. I don't really want to yeah. delve into his private life. But he openly says he is. And I just noticed the paradox, which I call the the David the the Murray paradox. You know, so uh, it's it's a paradox which he created himself. Douglas Murray. Mm. It's a Douglas Murray paradox. He created himself, and he can't sort it out. I just pointed out the fact it's a paradox, yeah, a logical yeah, yeah. Um, fallacy. And so this is what, this is where Europe is. This is where Europe is. That fear that Douglas Murray has of Islam growing is the reason why you have all this far right rhetoric. This is the reason you have the Conservative Party um, insisting on no immigration, and it's essentially because the people coming are Muslims. Hmm. Just just remember that that the, the the underlying you know if you look at the people that are um, spearheading this campaign against migrants are people that are very Islamophobic. I don't like to use that word anyway. Anti-Muslim. They don't want the, the European, the, the, the non-Muslim nature of Europe to change. Deep down, I absolutely I, I know that for a fact. Deep down, yeah. that's what's moving them. They're not going to say in public, but that's essentially what it is. And so as yeah. Muslims in the West, it leave, leaves us with a very interesting question. How, to what, how are we going to engage with this public discourse? Because we're extremely, I always say this, Muslims are really late to the party here. Like, they're really naive in terms of how the world works. Really naive in terms of how politics works. Extremely naive on how 
to stop yourselves being being lynched as a community. If you look at history, if you're just on the sidelines in this ghetto, you know, at some point someone's say, who's living in that ghetto? Yep, absolutely. Do you understand? Do you understand? I mean, I'm, I'm not being stupid here. I'm, yeah, I'm saying yeah, the you, reality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Historic history exactly. plays itself out, and I just yeah. feel that Muslims, the moment they get they get they they they, they get slightly perturbed or scared, they hmm. they go they go into illogical mode, illogical. Hmm. Like they just talk I mean, gibberish. In, in, in intelligently carved out situations like Nelson Mandela and Ibrahim Rasul. Do you know this? Situations. I mean. If people are not educated, I can't help them, to be honest. I mean, if you don't have a, a sense of historical perspective, you know, I'm here to give you historical perspective for what it's worth. It's, it, I think it's life and death sometimes. It's it's important that you understand we're, we're, we're more than just our day-to-day, you know, daily, you know, nine-to-five that we're living and just raising our heads above the parapet sometimes and seeing where the world is. You know, if you look at what the world is going through, the, the Russian-Ukraine um, war is precipitating a very tumultuous situation in human history. The movement of China and even brokering peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia and what that effect's going to have on American homogeny, which is good, but how that tectonic shift is going to play out in terms of everything else <clears throat> having to be realigned is going to be tectonic. And, you know, it's going to affect us in some way. And we have to have a voice there that represents us, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. That's all we have for today's reflections. Inshallah, tomorrow again with Sheikh Rizwan. Um, and it is going to be Sheikh Rizwan tomorrow as well. I'm just announcing it on air and letting Sheikh Rizwan know as well. What? So, <laughs> so tomorrow's reflections is going to be with uh, our, the same guest, inshallah. And Tuesday is going to be Sheikh Amir Jamil. Um, and until then, tomorrow, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah.